This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is June 9th, 2023. Regular listeners to this program know that the combination of investing, climate, and regulation, well, that adds up to a topic that takes up a lot of mind space, both at companies and within the investment industry. And you will also know that this combination leads to a veritable cacophony of acronyms. But as I spoke with our guests earlier this week, what became clear was that getting distracted by the alphabet soup was to miss the point. The need to measure, report, and act has only grown stronger. And frankly, time is not on our side. I explored this topic with Nakul Jadav and Simona Ruiz Fergotti of MSCI ESG Research, as well as Brenda Kramer. She is Senior Advisor, Responsible Investment at PGGM. Yes, another acronym. Here's that conversation. First off, of course, thank you all for joining us. We've really been looking forward to to having this conversation, as you all know, for quite a while. So let's dive in. Um, and perhaps, Nakula, you can start us off. Uh, let's just define terms for folks. We're here to t- today to talk about the EU Sustainable Finance Package. So what is that? What are the key regulations around it? Yeah, so the EU Sustainable Finance Package uh, mostly has key regulations as the EU taxonomy, the SFDR. So EU taxonomy has been the most prominent regulation of the Sustainable Finance Package, which has been um, in the news and uh, in the works for the last couple of years. And companies have really started reporting on this. And SFDR also has now come into prominence as more uh, of an importance than the EU taxonomy. And those two are kind of like the building blocks or the major components of the EU Sustainable Finance Package. So last year for EU taxonomy, it was more about eligibility. But from this year, they have to also report an alignment. And uh, more and more companies have now realize the challenges coming uh, from these two regulations, the reporting uh, challenges, data challenges. And maybe just to add, there is also the EU Green Bond um, initiative or legislation that um, is voluntary. But if you want to have the EU Green Bond standard in the future, you will have to implement and follow the EU taxonomy. That voice you just heard was Simona. And it was really the first use case, mandated use case, even though it's voluntary. But if you want the EU green bond, bond label, you'll have to take this into account. So it, it empowers the taxonomy and gives it a direct use case linking it to bonds. Um, but the taxonomy could also be used for broader reporting under the SFDR, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And it becomes mandatory and requires an, an, an assessment by an audit firm in the future under the CSRD, which is the last piece maybe on this. Use sustainable finance package, the corporate sustainable disclosure uh, regulation, and uh, that one will enter into force next year only. So it's the last missing piece, but one that mm-hmm. feeds all the rest in terms of data and reported information that everyone needs to disclose and uh, measure alignment or adverse impact under the SFDR. I, I agree. I think SFDR is um, very useful. It's basically about say what you do and do as you say. And that's our third guest, Brenda. So it increases transparency and it really forces you to 
build on the claims that you do. So you can't just say, hey, I'm doing this like very nice Paris aligned benchmark or things like you really need to substantiate that with data. And I think that's a major step forward. Um, CSRD obviously is is a key piece of, you know, fulfilling the architecture of, you know, companies reporting on what they do in taxonomy, what they do on um, critical ESG factors so that financial institutions can, can start allocate their capital in a different way, right? So we're eagerly waiting for CSRD to come in place. And I, I really hope it's going to uh, still be as substantial as we hoped it would be after the negotiations are finished. So the negotiations are are still going on. What What is the timing that we're looking at? So there was a report from an external advisory group, EFRAC, and that uh, was the foundation. And now they come with their own proposals and they will run a very, very short consultation because in, in this before the summer, they want to have finalized these standards so companies have sufficient time to look at them and implement them. And you need to remember that for a couple of the metrics that need to be reported, a materiality assessment is required and that needs to be run now so companies know actually what to capture as of next year. So that's why there's a high time time pressure. Randa, what you referred to, our concern right now is that the metrics that are required by financial investors, the principal adverse impact indicators for the SFDR reporting, that they don't become mandatory as we had expected, but there is talk about making those as well subject to a materiality assessment. However, they were always thought as a double materiality um, screen, which means it is re- relevant for each industry, even if you yeah. know advertising business has nothing to do with emissions to water, uh, it's still a relevant metrics according to the SFDR. And so investors have to report it for all sectors. And now some sectors might not report it. That's difficult. That's that will be problematic, data gaps, definitely. Right? Yes. Brenda, a problematic how? Can you expand on that? Yeah, so so if we are really dependent on the data that we get from the companies that we invest in, so we are obliged to do this set of it's a set of sixteen ESG indicators that are prescribed basically by the uh, Sustainable Finance um, Directive or sorry, uh, disclosure regulation. So if we don't get that data, it's going to be really hard to get credible and and accountable data for that. Um, There is a part in SFDR or actually also in CSRD that does refer refer to that investors should at least get the data that they need to fulfill their obligations. So there's some kind of like legal hook, but still we see negotiations going a bit in a different direction. So it will be exciting to see what comes out of it. And how this develops further in an international space as well, because if you look at um, the IFRS and the International Sustainability Standards Board that is working on, on, on standards that should be Become a global benchmark or global baseline, basically. So yeah, because in the end, you need that data for your entire portfolio and not just for the European exactly. companies that report, right? And then exactly. the question becomes: Is these European uh, regulations are they applicable to the rest of the world? Some say yes, because any company that is listed on a European exchange might have to report this data. That becomes a very extensive reporting uh, obligation. For the same reason, there is a push to reduce this burden so that actually companies across different sizes and different reporting infrastructures can actually do the the work and and report on that data. And there's also a a different phased approach depending on the size of the company, depending on whether it's European or international with European business. So there are different timelines and that that makes sense. But at least we need to know that at one point, the data will be there, will be be comparable. 
um, and that there is a certain interoperability between these two uh, standards, the international one and the European one. Also, the international one only covers climate for the start, but they are already planning on building on that with biodiversity and human capital subsequently, and maybe others. Uh, there is a consultation running right now on the ISSB standard. But uh, we will see before the summer the climate one, and so we'll have the climate one at the international level and the climate one in the EU, plus further um, topics in the EU, because that also covers other environmental objectives, governance, and then mm. also social indicators. You know, this, this point that Simona makes is absolutely important. A, a global, uh, global data would really help us, like as international investors. I think working towards a global baseline is really important. And for me, I do this work because I want capital to move in a sustainable direction, like I just want us to invest differently and invest us in a better world. And we can only do that if the data on sustainability gets a quality and a comparability that is equal to financial information as we process this now. So yeah, I think the, the key word here was the, the commonality uh, between the data, the baseline, because as we move from NFRD to CSRD, the scope of the companies will increase, the coverage will increase. And if you want companies who are going to invest into EU also from a new taxonomy point of view, it is very important um, to have a common baseline uh, across the globe for all these regulations. We cannot just focus on EU laws, even though these are EU regulations. It is also important to establish this common baseline, as Simone was saying. And we cannot just focus on regional levels of laws or transpositions. It needs to be on a global level. I think we can still be more ambitious in Europe. I, I really hope we keep that ambition because we've been really on the front of what's happening when it comes to, to, to sustainability regulation and the EU Green Deal. And it can be a good economic model. I believe that especially the Green Deal just covers the whole economy. And I think one concern I have in that, I, I, I totally agree, Brenda, that this is um, some leadership role here that is also seen in, in how other countries pick up the taxonomy. We, we're just doing Absolutely. a mapping between these global taxonomies and the European one. And there are so many similarities. You can really see that this has become a blueprint um, that is copied in variations. And that's, of course, making sense. Other countries have different priorities, might want to include agriculture, for instance, or might have a, a greater focus on, on natural resources. Um, especially on a, from an emerging country perspective, a very relevant point. But I think the EU has uh, also started on a on a train that's very difficult to slow down and revert, and that's that's called complexity. Uh, I think Naku, you have a lot of experience in collecting this data now, and companies struggle with reporting the right data. Even though, when you think about how you look at the data landscape, you always think reported data, so company reported data is the most reliable one. But that is something we can't always confirm because companies also need to understand the regulation and when the data is highly regulated that means there are metrics and templates that are just very predefined with a lot of granularity then you can lose um, it it's easy to get it wrong let's put it this way and then the data reliability suffers i don't know if you have maybe some example to give here yeah you're correct about the EU taxonomy being too complex. That That's also in line with the ambition of the EU. Just like Brenda mentioned that we are becoming too ambitious. Maybe it's just become too big to handle, maybe from a complexity perspective. So companies are facing really big challenges uh, in reporting the as per the regulation, especially some of the technical screening criteria, for example, are so stringent 
that it is very difficult for companies for pollution, for emissions, uh, where, where the units of measurements are so complex that companies would rather just say not disclose or say we are not aligned rather than going into so much efforts in reporting as per such complexity. So adding a very high level of complexity is proving to be a major roadblock in reported data as we are seeing more and more reported data for 2022, for example, for eligibility and alignment coming in, we see a lot of mismatch or gaps. This is because there is still a gap between what the regulation says and what the companies are, are interpreting it. I agree, especially the, I think the concept of do no harm has proven to be very difficult. And we see that in our own implementation now as well. So at PGM, we've for a long time, I think almost 15 years done investments that align revenues with certain impact indicators and, and a, our own taxonomy. But applying the do no significant harm screen has proven to be very difficult, even though we have so much experience with doing this kind of measurements already. The complexity of either EU taxonomy, where you have this pres prescriptive harm criteria that you have to look at, or in SFDR, where they say you can define it yourself, but you have to look at these 16 adverse indicators, so basically 16 pres prescribed ESG indicators. And there, the question of materiality really comes into play again. Because if you're not allowed to apply materiality there and you have to apply all 16, you can never, ever say you do a sustainable investment because the data covers, as you rightly say, Nicole, is not that good that you know that for every company. It's proven to be a major challenge with a lot of differences, at least from our opinion, in depending on what asset class you are. In general, we see public markets are okay, especially large corporates, then we thought all private markets would be difficult, but we've seen in, in practice that our direct private investments, we've done quite well on the data coverage, whereas if we do private equity, fund of fund management, and the small caps under that, or even mid caps, that is very difficult. Yeah, I guess what I hear is a bit from the um, taxonomy side that um, there was an expectation on the infrastructure side, which is often structured through special purpose vehicles, that they could, um, you know, use the taxonomy to leverage um, finance for especially those very green, very renewable, um, mm -hmm. top of the top notch um, um, activities, um, mm -hmm. where where you would think this is a perfect use case, but. Um, yeah. In the early days, they, they don't generate a lot of revenue. The CapEx data is, is also not necessarily uh, available at the, the right amount. And also, it's not necessarily always collected. That's also a topic. Um, so yeah. you might not get that data through, uh, you know, our uh, <laughs> data. <laughs> so there is this limitation. And that's something uh, we are working on as well at MSCI, just extending the private uh, asset database here. So this is sort of the question of, there is a market use case for all of what you're seeing here in that regulatory space, but that's not necessarily the day-to-day -day job of the regulator. So now we have the SFDR consultation, which really is around where are we going with this yeah. regulatory instrument as an, a real opportunity to provide feedback, not on just what is being proposed as a change, but also more broadly, is this the right instrument? Do we need to change the way we assess harm? Do we need to change the way we assess sustainable investment? 
investments? What are the indicators apart from the 16 that you mentioned that really matter for us? So I think that's not necessarily the end of uh, the discussion here. It will take some time, but it's the moment to to make your voice heard if you if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> and and Brenda, that would be I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to make sure we use that as an excellent segue, Simona, to talk about the fact that, as you say, this is not the regulator's day to day job, but Brenda, it is yours. So I would really love for you to talk a bit about um, how this has impacted you and your teams as you go about your day to day business. It's, we, we've talked a lot about the data and, and, and there are definitely complexities, but but I think a good thing about what SFDR did is that, first of all, it, it made us reflect on, are we really doing what we're saying that we're doing? Do we, ever, do we do everything that's on our websites and how do we do it? And in which asset classes do we do it in which way? So it has increased our own reflection. And also what I like most about my day-to-day job at the moment, and I love that when developing taxonomy as well, is that you need different disciplines. Like there's no one discipline in any company that can do this. Like your responsible investment team is not able to do SFDR on its own. You need your legal people. You need your data people. You need model builders. Um, you need the investment teams to tell you what they're actually doing and how they were assessing it. And um, so it's been a a major integration exercise actually my team is 10 people 10 people from different divisions of the company and we're working very intensely with our client which has proven um, very useful as well and very enriching so it's brought us um also very good internal discussions and internal reflections due to the timelines and the pressure we haven't like we we weren't able to look at it from a strategic point of view where you would say, how can we optimize these processes, right? So can we align it with our responsible investment strategy that has been there for, for years now? And we're updating that uh, once every couple of years. I hope we will have the time and, and, and space to, to do that next year and to actually see, hey, can we go like from what we know from the regulator now, um, can we find a way that we can do this more efficiently and more coherently instead of, you know, just publishing the data because we need to do it because that can't be the purpose of all of this, right? So what I've really realized is that the entity level statement that we need to do on adverse impacts, it's a rolled up statement on entity level. It's not very useful if you look at the data, but the underlying data, if you want to steer and want to get more feeling for your portfolios are are very useful. So I'm really hoping we can dive a bit more into that and see what we can do for clients there. It's brought good discussions and less good discussions because there are also some, especially international parties that say, we're not obliged to do anything on EU. So you would send your, you know, you have this best effort obligation, which means even if you know you're not going to get anything back, you need to mail all of your external management to see you know what they can give you in data but we've had so many answers like hey we're we're a u.s company we can't do this or we're this and we can't do it we're not obliged to do it and um yeah that was interesting because we are so who's right in that um, has a very <laughs> very nice discussion 
That was really interesting what you said, because it's also a bit the experience we have when we talk to clients. And I'm a bit concerned. The, the more we have legal teams on the call, the more I know this is the tick the box exercise that the regulator didn't want. No, exactly. <laughs> so we, we are asked to come up with all sorts of statements to help um, communicate with the regulator. And I, I always feel like you take out the excitement that is sustainable investment, that is impact, that is so searching to, to leverage the green credentials of your assets and that that I'm not I'm sure it's the, the unintended effect and I think once you have done the first alignment and you're sort of getting more comfortable also with what data you can report on and and that you are aligned with the regulatory expectations which actually are just forming themselves they are not yet set in stone there is also this exactly. practice emerging right so I think then you can start and building on that you can focus on these indicators and I think you you once said that it it is a good focusing of of your reporting energy and then also of your building and manufacturing energy hopefully coming up with new products that really leverage the indicators and not a hundred or thousand but just these ones that are really considered relevant right now from from a data collection perspective or what we are seeing in the market the companies are still seeing it as an obligation rather than a motivation so the moment they start seeing it as business as usual as part of their life or a part of a company's motivation to contribute to sustainable finance. And then I think we will see better data quality, uh, better exposure, better disclosures. I think so. I hope so. You know, and I, I find we have a role in that to play as well. So as investors, if we ask for these data, we should be generally interested in what we get and, and talk to companies. We have 6,000, so we're never able to talk to every, any, you know, company, but at least the direct investments and the companies that you have larger stakes in, you can have a conversation on, hey, what, do you, what are you doing here? Or for private equity, we work together with other private equity parties to get better data and, you know, to kind of prevent companies to get like 20 or 30 different um, questionnaires from all of their investors, right? So I think it can definitely align and consolidate these reporting efforts. I keep telling my team, this is no work for perfectionists. Like I can't have perfectionists in a team because we're never going to be perfect. This is not going to be like, there's no golden standard yet. So we're developing this and we need to deal with that uncertainty throughout the project and throughout the implementation. And, you know, I've told my organization, the clients that it is likely that we will get a letter from the regulator because the regulator is going to look at all of these statements and take the best parts of everyone and then tell the others that they should do it that way. So, you know, even though I worked super hard, my team did everything they can, I can't prevent that from happening. And so I think it helps to be clear up front. It's never nice to get these letters, um, but we need to keep telling them, you know, this is a development, we're doing what we can do. We answer on these consultations where we can to have influence on, on you know, what is helping us. And, and eventually, I do believe that this consolidation of reporting efforts can free up energy and space to think about, okay, and what are we going to do with it now that we have that information? If we right now strive for companies to be absolutely perfect in the reporting, it's just going to scare people away and also scare investors away. So it's not for perfectionists, but more for the optimist about uh, who are people who are more optimistic, who are persevering to, to, to the common vision of the Green Deal. So, yeah, I think we should be supportive of, of the company that they're trying their best uh, to match these requirements, to 
navigate through this complexity. And I think in the coming years, we will be reaching close to the perfection. I hope so. Let's see. <laughs> and Nicole, I like the way that you put that earlier about um, moving from an obligation to a motivation. I'm curious uh, for, for any of you, um, when it comes to different types of companies, are those who see it as an obligation versus a motivation in one sector versus another one area of the world. There are different regions with different preferences based on politics, based on uh, company uh, distribution. But also, like, if you go to financial institutions like banks, they see more it as an obligation because they have so many undertakings. They have to report so much data. So they see it more as an obligation. But you have um, other companies which have uh, exposure to, to natural uh, products or they have uh, investments in uh, for example, which are affecting actual people, so sustainable products. So they are more, they see it more as a motivational thing or they see it more as their job rather than as just um, uh, as a requirement. But right now, like I said, it's, it is seen almost by everyone as an obligation because it's been forced upon so much and they have, the deadlines are so close by. Yeah, we I've seen some really yeah. interesting examples from, from Dutch banks that, are creating taxonomy aligned loans and they do have ESG incentives. So for example, you know, the company might not yet be taxonomy aligned, but if they get this loan and they get taxonomy aligned, there is an, um, a lower interest rate in the future. So the, the demand for that is increasing, which is a good thing. Um, so, so there is some space, I think, in, in banks to think about their reporting obligation is obviously enormous. Um, but I think we haven't talked about it yet, but you mentioned the Cremont uh, standards in a moment. There was also the benchmarks uh, regulation. And that is also something where at least commercial uh, asset managers have an, an ability or a possibility to get this label where you can actually say, hey, I am in line with these European ambitions if and you can buy this benchmark. So there's some opportunities in there, but, but it's completely right that the timelines were so tight this year that the headspace was really clouded with you know deadlines and and getting things done instead of like thinking more about this as a business opportunity but you mentioned the green bonds designation um my mind immediately goes to greenwashing <laughs> and the potential for that is how, how would this work so the green bond standard is the European should be the European gold standard for a green bond. So that means if you get this standard, it is actually it it proves you not to greenwash. So you there is um, there are strict reporting obligations that need to align with EU taxonomy for a certain percentage, very high percentage, um, and you have to uh, report on whether you made that alignment and you have to have that verified. So so it. If you see a bond that has an EU green bond label on it, once it's there, um, the idea is that you can definitely trust that is not greenwashing. Yeah, I think the challenge really is this high alignment yeah. requirement, 80%, I think. Usually when you look at the green bond market, it's, you know, at least a million, I think, is is actually a small bond so you'll see the the bond size um being in the millions and then finding the investment activities to finance that sort of align in their structure so that the bond can be easily put together all these things and elements that play a role 
is, is not mm. going to be easy to find. And, and that's also to do with the fact that the reporting has just started. So you don't know. Um, but at the same time, of course, you can then connect the, the project reporting to the bond and that makes it easier so you have direct access to the data and that's a different approach than when you say finance a company and you need to make sure that the company is actually reporting on this alignment and you might not have a direct access to that company so uh, th there is the beauty of it that you probably see a pull from this financial instrument into um, data provisions through the project or the um, the vehicle financing the project can you talk a little bit more about the effect on those existing regulations as we look for that commonality, that global standard? What are some of the lessons that other jurisdictions can take from what's happening in the EU? Yeah, I can start. I would think that what the International Standard Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, is working on is, is a common baseline. It's also called a minimum baseline. And I think the fact that you know, the EU strives for maybe a, 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 almost a maximum baseline, if you like, because it's essentially going for um, impact, double materiality. Uh, it's going for an extensive set of, of indicators and areas. There, the ISSB chooses a different approach whereby they build, uh, start with climate and they build up on it over time. Uh, the, the disadvantage of such an approach is that it will take years until you cover all relevant um, sustainability areas or ESG areas. Um, and But it allows countries to sort of start maybe with the most burning topic, which is currently perceived to be climate change. It's, a, it's a, also a topic that can't be solved alone in one region like the EU with 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions has to involve countries like China, India, the US. Um, and so I think starting there is, is a good idea. Um, but then the interoperability really means that you, if you report under the EU standard, that it's accepted as equivalent to the international standard. And I think that's really important, especially if companies go all the length to report under the EU. They want to make sure they actually also, um, you know, in line with the international standards. And then maybe if a company reports under the ISSB in a in a in a developing country that maybe um, has business in the EU, that this could also be counted towards any reporting obligation that arises from this business in the EU. So this sort of allows for capital to flow. It allows for goods to flow. It allows for set up and collecting a, a data set on maybe the most burning societal and environmental topics that then investors can use to build products, but also can be used for, for broader society to understand uh, how a company fares on, on sustainability. You asked for lessons and I was like, I would have three, you know, like, first of all, I think what Simona says, phase in and, and keep it proportional. Uh, second of all, draw on different skills, like not only economists, not only ecologists, like combine those skills and third of a third one would be keep asking why are we asking these data and are they still the right data to fulfill our policy ambitions so those three lessons for me would be key in, in, in further developing this package i love it that's all for this week a big thank you from joe yair and me to nicole simona and brenda and to all of you for listening you can find more information on the EU taxonomy, including a recent blog post from the ESG research team at MSCI.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe.